I'm here today with Alicia uh, from Herb and Produce, and we've already just done a little interview with you and Barry, and and I think that was good. But but you know now it's time to kind of just dive a little bit deeper and kind of understand, um, you know, what's going on with you guys. How are you feeling today? It's like a it's like a chilly day in December for us. Yeah, here it's really cloudy, gloomy. Um, there were a little snow flurries earlier so winter is really coming so okay how do you feel about that are you are you a winter person because you know my sort of my uh impression of chicago sometimes is that in winter it's just this like impenetrable impossible i don't know like it is like in game of thrones when winter is coming like it is it is like that are you this do you feel the same way I do feel the same way, but I have grown to appreciate the changing of the seasons because it's like this metaphor of, I think in society, especially now, um, we're just, we're wanting to just go, 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 produce, 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 produce. But I think nature has a way of reminding us that sometimes it's just okay to slow down. And um, that's particularly <laughs> true with farming, especially when you have an outdoor operation in Chicago. So now we've like come to this point in the season where the season is slowed down and sales have slowed down. So you just kind of <laughs> gotta, you know, ride the wave and um, yeah, and just allow for nature to take its course. So yeah, not yeah. the I'm not a winter person, but I'm growing to appreciate it more and more with um, okay. taking vitamin D supplements. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I take vitamin D as well. And I try to get my girlfriend to take it. And then she she does it like, I don't know, I have to like sneak stuff into the smoothie for her. I put the B12 in, I put vitamin D. And everything. Yeah, and just to make sure that she gets it. So I'm glad you're doing that as yeah. well. So, so should we just for the benefit of people who maybe haven't watched the other interview, although they should? What? Who are you and what do you do? And tell us all about it. Uh, so I'm Alicia. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm the co-owner of Urban Produce. Um, as I stated in the last um, uh, segment of the podcast, um, it didn't start off that way. I started off as a greenhouse manager and my role has grown over time um, just with uh, the growth of the company. So that's really exciting um, to have that opportunity to have equity in a company that um, I have really worked hard and I really do believe in for real. <laughs> um, so that's really nice to have that, that perspective and also to have the opportunity to cast vision on that uh, company. Um, so my background is in science. I am a degreed scientist, um, a molecular biology with an um, concentration in genetics. So that was my educational background. Um, I spent the my 20s in the nonprofit world. Uh, so I ran, not ran nonprofits, but I was an admin at nonprofits, both religious nonprofit and um, at the university. So at the university, I oversaw all of the student research of my department um, for a grant called LSAMP, which, it, which its um, purpose was to get more minority students into research in sciences and actually graduate. So that was a really successful program. So that's my background. Yeah, yeah. 
and and herb and produce what do you grow and and as a reminder like where are you and what kind of space do you occupy in the city yeah so urban produce is an urban farm in the um, east garfield park neighborhood in chicago it started off as a 4,000 square foot hydroponic greenhouse. And today um, it is a farm that is nearly two acres in size. So we have over 17,000 square feet of um, traditional agriculture, um, which houses our production beds. And we have, um, I wanna say 1,200 square feet of vertical growth space through our A-frames and um, yeah, then we're going to have this amazing vertical farm that's coming next next year. And if you go back, I, I remember you telling us like that you had sort of walked past the farm before you joined and you'd sort of been aware of it. You know, what was your impression of urban agriculture before you got involved in this whole business? And, and you know, how has it played out now? How has how your sort of understanding of the whole space developed as you've, you know, become part of it? Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever sat in a science talk before where um, grad students or um, PIs, uh, they uh, present their research to a room. And so one summer I was in this research program and I remember like everyone was just talking about their research and I was just so bored. And there was this one grad student who was finishing up at UIC. I will never forget her. She um, did her research on on trichomes of um, of plants and how it related to pollution in um, in urban in urban settings. Tell people what the what are, what are the trichomes, by the way. So trichomes are basically a, a part of the the leaf. <laughs> I, I often see them. I don't have any. Yeah, I think, but we grow, do you ever grow this um, green wave mustard? Do you know that? It's like a really strong mustard green, but it has like a very frilly leaf and it, it'll develop trichomes, which almost look like little hairs, right? Yeah, they're, they're like, like sort little hair-like structures little on the leaves, yeah. <laughs> and often it'll, it'll, it means often that the plant is kind of defending itself or it's, it's just really healthy and it's, it's got like a lot of you know, good stuff going on. And I, you know, um, my friends in the cannabis industry also try to identify plants that have very visible trichomes because it can. Be oh, yeah. Sort of trichomes are like a huge thing in the cannabis industry because it lets you know um, <laughs> the quality of, of yeah. the plant. Yeah. Ants. Yes, for sure. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> sidetrack. But no, I just that's wanted great. To, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so she was relating trichomes to pollution and she did a lot of her research at urban farms. And so that was the first time that I'd even heard of the concept of urban farms in, in the or farming in the city. And I was like, that is really cool. I would love to connect with that, um, with her. I never connected with her, but when, um, and I was actually, thinking about going because you know my background is in genetics and so I was thinking about going into a wet laboratory and just doing a lot of genetics research um, at um, at another university and so at the same time there was this really cool greenhouse being built around the corner from my house and I'm like I wonder you know what they're doing and so I would I would um, follow the signs that they would post 
And so um, one day I was, I was finishing up at grad school, really stressed out and I was walking my dogs. And that's how I ended up connecting with Victoria, um, who was at the farm before. And yeah, like it, it, it has really been cool to see its growth. And at the time it just was that 4,000 square foot hydroponic greenhouse. But I'm glad it was just the 4,000 square foot, <laughs> 4,000 square foot hydroponic greenhouse because I don't know if I would have been able to run a farm of the size that it is now with no experience. So it's kind of like I grew with the farm. Uh, yeah. So that's yeah. been really fun. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you said you had no experience, like how did how did you convince someone to hire you with no experience? How did because. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, there might be people listening to this who have no experience. And I certainly started my career with no experience. And you always sort of rely on somebody, right, to sort of believe in you or kind of see something. And like, so how did how did you do it? What, what's your tip for, for getting hired with zero experience? So my my lead in was volunteering. So I just approached Victoria and I volunteered and I learned each process at the farm. And um, she knew I was finishing up at grad school. And so she said, she called and said, hey, you, it's something special about you. Um, I've never had a volunteer um, quite like you. You live right around the corner. I think this will be an amazing opportunity for you. Um, I know you haven't really landed on what you wanted to do after grad school. I think you should give it a try. And um, I would just say to be open and um, to learn as much as you can. So um, I only had Victoria for, well, actually still have her. I'm like best friends with her now. But um, at the time I was working with her for like two months and I was like a sponge because um, I could have easily went in and been arrogant, like, oh, I'm a scientist. I know everything. But I really was a sponge. I let her... I let her teach me everything. And so um, I was just open and I just learned everything about the business because I've never done sales before. So that was a new thing for me. And sales can be a little bit intimidating, especially when you are selling to top tier chefs. So <laughs> yeah. it, was a, it was a bit of a learning curve, but yeah, I would just say to be open and be ready for some rejection. And, but yeah. just to keep keep rolling with the punches. Yeah. And so, I mean, and it's also, you know, such a thing about urban farming that you were able to walk around the block and see this farm, right? I mean, that's, and that's one of the things that I kind of love about what we're able to do and of the urban farms is that you can have farms that are right there in the middle of the city and people can see them, they can understand how their food is growing, you know, it, it, as opposed to getting their produce from somewhere in California and having it shipped in and, and not having any connection to that, you know. So tell us a little bit, because I, I'm, I've visited Chicago a few times, but mostly like as a tourist, you know, so I don't know all the neighborhoods and stuff like that. What's, what's it like? What's East Garfield Park like? And, and how has your relationship with that neighborhood changed, you know, through your life and, and, and now? So, um, I feel like New York is the same where each neighborhood has its, um, distinct identity and Chicago is kind of the same way where, it's one of the most segregated um, cities, of course, but I feel like each neighborhood has its own distinct identity. 
And East Garfield Park has always been known for um, its um, greenscapes. So the Garfield Park um, Conservatory is huge, right? It sees over 200,000 um, tourists or visitors per year. And so there has been this um, boom of um, like small gardens in East Garfield Park and an interesting food scene that has emerged here. So um, I would say that East Garfield, and so that's cool, but it's proximity to the loop, the West Loop, which has, when I first moved back in 2013, the West Loop was, uh, it was originally like a meatpacking district. And so now Google's headquarters are there. You have all, it's like restaurant row is there. It completely changed. And so as a result, all of the adjacent neighborhoods have also kind of changed a bit. And so East Garfield Park is adjacent to um, the near West side, which is where the Bull Stadium is. And so you're seeing an influx of, people who are being priced out from the North neighborhoods like Logan Square and the West Loop area because it has really, the um, development has really boomed. And so I've seen, um, you know, a change in the the demographic of um, folks that live in the neighborhood, but also um, local residents really having a, a major voice at what's happening in um, in the neighborhood. So one of our closest partners is the Garfield Park um, Community Council. And uh, we've been really involved with them in just like hearing the opinions of the people who've lived here for generations. So it's, it's really been a delicate balance as to, you know, how do you provide, um, how do you provide investment without continuing to contribute to the displacement of folks who have been here for generations? Yeah. And I mean, how do you feel about that personally? Because obviously you're sort of, you can see it as a business, Herban Produce, and then you can see it as an individual. And I'm sure people around you who you've known for, you know, decades and stuff like, how do you feel about it? And what, like, yeah, what, what do you think is next? And yeah. Yeah. So I, I really didn't think much about it. Um, until I started seeing listings for homes that were around the farm and they were including the farm in the listings. And I'm like, wow, (laughs) this farm is really changing the uh, adjacent area. And so I immediately, like me and Barry, we've had these conversations of, wow, this farm is going to change this area of what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to contribute to it in a good way? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I just know, um, economics, um, and equity and opportunity have always been like really important to us. And so we continue to, um, just kind of keep it at the forefront of our mind of how we can positively, um, impact the local community. Um, but yeah, there's this juxtaposition of um, investors coming into the neighborhood too. So it's like, I don't know, like, I don't know what the future holds. I just know that we're working hard as a um, business to create impactful change. Yeah. And I mean, what are, and what are some of the ways that you guys are able to do that? 
So employment is one of the huge ways we're able to do it. Um, so as you know, in in communities like East Garfield Park, everyone just wants to open up nonprofits all over the place. And so that's one of the reasons why we decided that the, the neighborhood didn't need another um, nonprofit org, right? We needed a business that would be able to provide jobs, support entrepreneurs, even kind of stir up the entrepreneurial spirit. And so um, since the expansion of our farm, we were able to hire, um, how many? We were able to add five full-time employees and 10 youth that were from the local community. So that's huge. Um, we went from just having two um, full-time employees. So that's huge growth within a year. So um, I think employment is a huge way that we will contribute, but then also just the experience that experiences that we will be able to give the local community through, you know, food education, um, through, you know, with uh, the on-site consumption opportunities. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I know we, we talked about this before because one of the, one of the dynamics we experience is that we get a lot of intern applicants. I mean, a lot, and we've sort of shut them off this year because we just can't really accommodate them on the farm because of COVID and all that kind of stuff. But, but historically it's always been an issue for us because, you know, we'll get applicants who are clearly, you know, wealthy enough that they don't need to make money. They're from, you know, these top tier universities. They're clearly smart folks, but also the sheer volume of them is like displacing other folks who would maybe get more out of it. And, and I know that you, you know, you guys have a program, I think it's called like one for one or something like that, where, um, for internships, maybe tell us a little bit about that, how you do that and how do you look at internships and other opportunities and, and try to be equitable and who you offer them to? So it's funny you say that because um, one of my biggest challenges with urban ag is finding people with the skill sets to do the, the skills to get to do the work, especially when you're a small operation. And so like if you're an established farm, it's easy to, you know, bring on someone that doesn't really have the skill set to do the work because, you know, you probably can afford to have middle management to kind of hold their hand through the process, but that we weren't in that position. So um, for a while there, we had a revolving door because I was trying to, you know, I was trying to um, be good and and hire, <laughs> hire from like job training programs, but it just wasn't working out. Like it would just not work out. And it was the most frustrating thing to me. And so um, we decided to really hone in on our youth programming <laughs> and to kind of build out our, um, our employees with more people that had skill sets so that we can have middle management to um, better manage folks from like job training programs and returning citizens and things like that. So that's kind of like where our regular employees are headed. But for our youth programming, we decided, okay, we don't have the skill set to actually run a youth program. You know, like there are a lot of uh, parameters and requirements that are needed. So we decided to partner with a foundation called One for One Chicago. And that's the person, uh, that's the, the foundation that actually pays for the interns to work. And we just basically provide the job site for those interns. So it has worked out great. Um, the job, 
the internship has um, really evolved over the years. Mm-hmm. And um, it's so funny because when I used to run the student program at the university, there's this idea of, you know, youth, not idea, but youth need like almost like this wraparound service. And so a lot of the interns that we get are also graduating from high school. And so they're looking to apply to college. And so there were so many needs and one for one Chicago has really done a really good job at not only finding them job placement, but also providing a lot of you know, different touch points for them and really providing this like 360 type of, um, you know, mentorship. Yeah. Well, so, so like specifically, what does that look like? And, and what do, you know, people maybe coming from high school, maybe spending some time with you and then going on to do something else? Like what, what might that look like, for example? Yeah. So right now they come, they come and they, they're like, what, what the heck is this? You know, like what, what is a farm? So they're, they're not familiar with the work that is involved on the farm. So about two or three weeks in, they're like, oh my God, this is such hard work. (laughs) I can't believe I have to do this. And then like maybe a couple of weeks later, they really get excited and um, they really have a deeper connection And so a lot of times I see that the interns end up um, really wanting to explore urban ag and all the job opportunities that are um, connected with it. So a lot of them like, you know, research, um, not research, we have a research programs that are associated with growing in the food industry. Um, So it's like, it's given them a level of exposure that they didn't have before. But um, like I said, that the 360 wraparound service is definitely needed because our students have an extra barrier that is involved with um, actually getting to the university that I didn't even have as an individual. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And and, you know, when you think about urban and your kind of role or within the Chicago like urban farming community where do you think you fit in and like how does it relate to what other folks are doing and is are there some other folks doing really interesting stuff that you'd like to kind of highlight and, and point out yeah so um I think I mentioned this in the last segment but um I kind of see us as um I don't know, like we're doing something different because I feel that urban ag either fits into two categories in Chicago. So either it's this feel good nonprofit um, organization or it has millions of dollars backing it, um, you know, by um, BC. So we're kind of somewhere in the middle. And so um, it's very unique. And so, as you know, I didn't have a a background in urban ag. So I did a lot of, you know, workshops, seminars, and I got to kind of sit in the room with the people who were running these programs and people who ran these farms. None of them looked like me, right? But I felt like the industry, um, it didn't look like me, but I was like, man, how can we change this? There were no, um, you know, um, co-owners or owners in general that looked like me. Everyone that looked like me were either, you know, farm leads or doing, you know, farm hands. And they were kind of in front of the room um, stating how this program changed their life. And I'm like, oh my God, this seems so 
exploitive, you know? And I'm like, uh, so I just, I saw the ugly side of urban ag, but at the same time, I saw potential of how my business could be a little different. So that was kind of my initial connection with, um, with urban ag in Chicago. Yeah. I'd love if you can talk more about that. Cause I, I, I see some of the same dynamics, you know, in other cities. And I think that, um, you know, if you look obviously historically, there's this huge, huge agricultural, you know, sort of monstrosity in the U S about, you know, how folks of color have been treated and how land use has been taken away from people. And, and then, you know, to see, not exactly the same thing in urban agriculture, but like there's some sort of echoes, you know, I don't know, talk more about it. It's super interesting. I am second generation removed from farming. So my great grandfather had a huge farm in Mississippi. Um, (laughs) And my mother talks about him being this great entrepreneur. He basically farmed by himself. They would go down in the summers to kind of help him out with all the crops. But of course, none of the children wanted to take up agriculture. No one ran the family farm. And of course the grandchildren didn't because all of my, um, all of my aunts and uncles, they moved to Chicago. So they did more industry jobs and they lived in the big city. So no one was returning back to the South. And so um, when I talk about farming to them, they're like, wait, what? You, you <laughs> did all that schooling to do farming? I'm like, yeah, but it's connected. I promise you it's, it's technology-based, you know, all that. So um, just to see how a lot of the generations or the two generations before me, how they kind of lost this love for farming because of all of the negative connotations that are associated with it. Um, I mean, I understand it. Like I, I wholeheartedly get it, you know, um, at this, it's a lot of hard work one to farm and you really don't see that um, much of a profit, but you also see how broken the food system is and yeah. how it really wasn't, it really wasn't built, you know, you know, let's be honest, like if we go back to slavery, it wasn't built <laughs> uh, to be sustainable. Um, I just recently went to the Civil Rights Museum um, in Memphis. And in the beginning of the exhibit, it talked about um, the requirements of each slave based on the type of uh, crops that they grew. And um, I remember it was like, the thing, I think the tobacco crop and they were like, one slave was responsible for one acre. I'm like, oh my God, I could not imagine being That's responsible yeah. to farm. And they were saying how um, the, the sugar, the sugar um, plantations were so deadly that they were replacing their, their force every three years so the life expectancy of a of a slave was uh three years for a sugar plantation so with that deep-rooted history of how broken our food system is i can see why a lot of why a lot of african americans have shied away from the industry um and so just now coming back into it now uh, in in this modern day it's really funny how it has how it has really shifted, but how you know no one that looks like me is you know running the actual businesses. So it's been I don't know it's kind of been this like 
thing that I kind of wrestle with all the time of how do I how do I turn it around not by myself but how do I turn around and how do I um kind of educate um people of how to be connected to their food again yeah yeah no I, I mean <laughs> that's it's a so long many, answer <laughs> no it, no but that's it that the you know the reason that I think we want to have conversations that are longer and deeper is that we can talk about these kind of things whereas like when you're on a panel discussion you have like 12 seconds or something to talk about like why did you get into urban farming and then it's like okay but you know there is this huge huge other implications of what we do and and you know when whenever someone mentions like the food system or one aspect of the food system in america it's like okay well it's connected to this and this and this and this and this and you know you sort of can the more you dig the more you find and and the more you find the more it's like oh this is super fucked up and and yeah and so i'm not I'm not surprised. I mean, it, it's really interesting to me that dynamic within a family even to say like, okay, we've sort of moved away from farming as a family because it was so hard and so problematic. And and then I'm guessing it was sort of a great migration kind of timing, right? To to move to Chicago as so many families did, right? Um, and now to be back in the world of farming yeah, I mean, what what's it like? Do you ever get the chance to talk about this with grandparents or other relatives who are kind of older and have, you know, sort of both perspectives on this and everything? Yeah, they are amazed by it um, when they come back. So my grandmother, when she comes to the farm, is so nostalgic for her. And um, I could hardly keep her away. And I'm like, Ma, I mean, Grandma it's a pandemic you cannot come to the farm but she wants to like work and do things on the farm because she's like oh my gosh this reminds me of the time of my dad and of course like her father died before I was born I think in like 86 so he's been gone a long time so it's like she has this she immediately went back to just you know farming with him and how that made her feel um so they've been really supportive. Um, of course, my my paternal side of the family, they always have lived in Chicago. So they've been city folk. Um, so they don't have the same connection. They're almost, they're always like, uh, no, uh, <laughs> I'm okay with not farming. <laughs> but yeah, just to see that um, resurgence of, you know, pride and oh, this is so nostalgic and oh, I get to pick my food. And then she goes home and she cooks it and she's like, oh, I remember this is so fresh. This is how we used to taste back home. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about the food then. I noticed behind you, you have the vegetable butcher book. Uh, but I, I, I don't know if I know that book or not, but like, how does it, tell me about the food history in your family. And, you know, if you go back to that Mississippi time versus now, and then like, I know personally that, you know, the food within my family has changed a lot, even just during my lifetime, you know? So I, I don't know, how do you, how has your family's relationship with food changed over time and, and what is it now? Yeah. So, um, before, so back when my grandmother was growing up in the South, they grew everything. So my grandfather had this huge, you know, field. So on the off seasons, he preserved, he had livestock. So he slaughtered a lot of the, the, um, the, uh, livestock, livestock, he fished. So, 
uh, he would, you know, prepare all the fish. So everything was fresh. Everything was like, you know, farm to table, um, as we say now. Um, and so to go from that to, to my generation where I'm ordering Uber Eats, you know, um, every day to survive. So <laughs> that's exactly how it's changed. <laughs> so um, even back with my mom, um, she probably prepared maybe a couple of meals a week because she was a working parent. So we ate out a lot. Uh, and so there has really been this disconnect of where our food is sourced from. And so um, as I said, like we're in the midst of this pandemic and now people are really conscious of what they're putting in their body. So I, I think this is a very um, unique time to kind of be in the forefront and kind of talk to people like, hey, uh, we can connect back to our food. And so with my family, it has kind of been that same thing. So everyone pays attention to labels now um, to see where their food is being sourced. Um, so that's really, that's really been um, important. And I'm glad that that's happening now, yeah. We're starting to connect back to our food. Yeah, tell me more about what you think about that because you're one of the first people I've spoken to who has connected the pandemic to food and what we eat and paying attention to what you eat. I mean, personally, I think it's it's staggering. When you look at the numbers, right, it, you know, the risk of mortality with COVID like goes up how many hundreds of percent with comorbidities like diabetes and heart disease and just other conditions, right? And, you know, historically and presently in the U.S., a lot of those conditions are really connected to lifestyle and diet. But, but you know, if you look in the media, if you look on TV or you look in, on uh, New York Times or whatever, people don't really mention diet at all when they talk about COVID. They don't mention what people are eating. They don't mention lifestyle. They don't mention any of these factors. And it's it's sort of so tragic that, you know, this pandemic has gone on long enough now that someone who had made a an attempt back in March to change what they eat and eat healthier could have had, you know, a really good progression by now to put them at less risk of this disease. But I can't see anybody around the country even talking about that. What What do you think about about that and that conversation and, and how it fits in? Yeah, so um, it, it just was a reminder of how um, African-Americans are really disproportionately impacted by everything that happens. And so food being one of them. So even East Garfield Park is considered a food desert. Um, we only have one grocery store. Um, it's not even in East Garfield Park, it's in the near West side. Um, and that just came when I first moved to the neighborhood. And before that, there hadn't been a grocery store in this neighborhood for over 40 years, 40 years. <laughs> and so, it's, it's easy to disconnect from being able to eat healthy when it's always available to you. And um, for neighborhoods that, you know, have a lot of people of color in it, they're normally food deserts, right? And so the option to walk out of your door and go to a local, um, you know, corner store or grocery store, a little grocer that has like fresh food it really doesn't exist. And so you end up eating, you know, with convenience. And that's kind of has what happened, has what has happened to us over generations. We, you know, work hard, um, you know, cause most folks are like working class, middle class. So you work hard, you don't really have the time to prepare your food. And so it's 
been this convenience lifestyle. Okay. I'm just going to go pick this up on the way home, but I'm not really paying attention to what I'm, you know, putting in my body. And as a result, you know, we have all these underlying issues that have, you know, been passed down and it's, yeah, it's really nerve wracking and it's, um, disheartening that, uh, but it's also an opportunity to kind of turn around the narrative and really just kind of preach, no, we have to change the way we eat, pay attention to the labels, stop eating processed food, let's eat more fresh. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously then the question becomes right about, you know, you see folks doing community farms, you see people raising a lot of money to do VC backed farms. And I think the, um, you know, the, the, the phrase food, food desert comes up all the time, right? In urban agriculture panels and, it, but like, what do you think is really happening to, to push against food deserts and to bring food back to communities and to really solve this problem? What do you, what do you see as like the really effective things that are going to solve this? Yeah, it's so funny you say that because I know you've heard a lot of um, people that have these pipe dreams of opening up this community garden or starting an urban farm and then all of a sudden they solve the issue of the, their neighborhood being a food desert. Like it would take <laughs> an army of little small urban farms to support a community. And so the reality of, <laughs> of these small farms being able to support the population is unrealistic, right? And so what we really have to push for is more development so that we get more grocery stores. So that, okay, if you do have small community gardens or small farms, maybe they can, you know, be a provider for that grocery store and they aggregate things. I mean, for me, that would be more of um, a realistic goal to just push for more development um, in these communities versus trying to, you know, solve the issue with, you know, small gardens and farms because it's just not realistic. Yeah, I think, no, I mean, this is one of the sort of really, um, I guess, tricky things that I, I find with urban agriculture is like, first of all, a lot of people come into, into this very idealistic, right? It's like, oh, I want to solve this. And then, and then you start to do a thing and then you realize how hard it is just to, just to grow like a bean is really hard, you know? And so, and so then, you know, of course people get, get wrapped up as they have to into just keeping their own little thing alive. You know, how do you keep not only the plant alive, but how do you keep this business alive or how do you keep this thing going? And, and I know that, you know, one of the difficult conversations we had internally this year even was like during COVID, as a business, as you know, we're like a for-profit business. Historically, we've been very associated with high-end restaurants and all that kind of thing. And and then, you know, during this year, there were a lot of conversations with a lot of our junior folks, I, I would say, who wanted to like donate a lot of produce, wanted to, you know, people were saying, look, there's starving people on the streets. We should be donating this thing. We should. And and us trying to have to figure out as an organization, like, well, how can we sort of be effective? How can we grow? How can we stay alive as an organization, you know, um, and try and do a little bit of good? And and also, like, what is it? Is it better for us to sell, sell produce at a lower price, to give it away, 
or to give someone a job, you know, and most of the time the answer has been like, it's better for us to give someone a job because the the, the sheer amount of produce we can grow is not that great anyway. Yes. You know? yes. And I mean, that that is the key there, Rob, to be able to provide another job so that that person can, you know, afford to feed their family quality food, right? Um, and then I think the other part is that education piece and, you know, food sourcing and um, how to create a nutritious diet, I think is going to be another important part of our business models. Because um, we're not going to solve that food desert issue. It's it's deeply rooted. <laughs> it's deeply rooted. It's all we can do is just try to chip away at it. And um, I think, you know, playing to that, okay, it's best for us to sell things at a higher price point, which is a hard conversation to have, but we know that's the only way that our businesses will be supported, but also have um, avenues where we are able to donate and we're able to support our community, but we'll only be able to do that if we have a sustainable and profitable business. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, you're someone who actually does look at that PL, like you look at everything you're spending and you understand that. Tell tell us a little bit about, I mean, you don't have to give us numbers, but like what what are the economics of running an urban farm look like for you know, because a lot of people look at these things and they go like, oh, that's pretty. There's flowers over here, there's lettuce over here, everyone's smiling, you know, there's they got they got dirt on their jeans and it's fun. But what does it really look like? Yeah. <laughs> what does it really look like when you open up like Google spreadsheet or Excel or whatever? Um, you know, what, what does it look like? Yeah. So it's depressing because like <laughs> I said, our food system is so effed up um, that people don't want to pay for food. Right. But at the same time, if food prices were to rise, people couldn't afford the food. So it's just like, you know, you, you go back and forth about, you know, what the pricing of food should be. And so the thing that we've learned, because I told you, like, food doesn't pay the bill. So selling produce is one hard. And um, at first we were selling commodity crops. So you already know how hard that is, because now we're sized up against a 15 acre farm downstate. So that was just really hard. So yeah. We learned that in urban agriculture, you have to have multiple streams. So it's not just the food, but it's food and events, events and tours, then the farm stay, cafe, all of these things have to work together. Um, Barry and I like to say ecosystem. So we create this um, ecosystem of all these tiny businesses that help um, create this one sustainable business. And I'm pretty sure you've experienced the same thing. If you were just selling to restaurants, you wouldn't be open. <laughs> Yeah, well, especially this year. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem was, you know, we had the chef sales and then we had the events, tours and classes, which were great. And then, of course, COVID took everything <laughs> away. So we had to kind of reinvent the whole thing. And it, like, um, I mean, how's it going now for you guys in terms of profitability and everything? Are you, you know, I, I know that it's it's probably been really tough. Are you, do you feel like you, you've got something now where you can kind of sustain no matter what happens with the pandemic? Or are you sort of got a timeline for getting things back in a certain way? How does it look? Yeah, so when the pandemic hit, we went from, like you said, we went from, you know, right on the right track um, 
10 restaurant partners to absolutely nothing, you know, no income coming in. So we had to pivot and figure out how to make it work. So that's when we launched the subscription program. Um, so having the subscription has given us a bit of hope, um, but we're still not at full production. And so we're hoping to work up to that um, by the time the cafe opens um, in the spring, early summer. So we're hoping with all those things in our, and then of course we have the big construction projects happening. So now with that coming to completion and us having the cafe and ramping up um, our production, we hope that we'll, we'll at least get to the point of uh, breaking even pretty soon. Nice. Nice. And, but I mean, tell me about like, you know, when these things happen, because for me, I'm touching my heart, right. Which is like, because I'm like, okay, for me, you know, when these things happened instantly, I'm like, oh, okay, well, how are we going to survive as a business? We know we're going to have to let some folks go or something, people who we love working with and we want to support. And, you know, how do you feel when you have to go through those decisions and it, I mean is this the first time you've had to do something like that or and how do you kind of approach it so I've always been I've never been in this seat before of uh being in control of the the outcome or the success of the business and so this year has been really tough fortunately I haven't had to let anyone go yet um because as soon as all of the resources started to appear, I was applying to everything. So the PPP, we got that. I also got um, the SBA um, loan. So that has helped to sustain us. Without it, I don't know what we would have done. Did you get it quickly? Or did you... I did. Oh, I you're did. lucky. I, I was, listen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but like, let me tell you my story, right? Just for a second. Cause like the, the crazy thing was we raised some money in February and the bankers at Chase who normally just didn't care about us suddenly started calling me saying like, oh, we want to meet you and we're going to be your private bankers and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll go and I'll meet you guys. And I knew that it was nothing, but they, and then they talked to you for ages about how they're going to help out your business. And then you can call them if anything happens. And, and then literally six weeks later, I really need the PPP loan and I need to reply through them and they, you can't get them on the phone at all. And we didn't get it for months and months. And th thankfully we had some cash and it wasn't a disaster, but it, I can imagine for a lot of people, that difference of six weeks or whatever, that'll kill your business, you know? So anyway, I'm really glad you guys got it pretty fast because I think a lot of people didn't. And it's, you know, it's, it, it was really clear that, Chase Bank or these other banks, they prioritized their big customers first, and then the smaller folks, like, okay, we we'll maybe we'll get to them later. Anyway, that's my just my rant. Carry on. No, you're you're absolutely <laughs> right because that's how it is. I just applied for a state grant um, just to kind of fill some gaps, and that one is that one's taking a very long time. So I don't know what's going to be the outcome of that grant, but. Yeah, and so, <laughs> I'm just taking this thing day by day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, but who do you kind of look to, you know, when you're going through these kind of things for the first time? Obviously, you work with Barry, who I think has a lot of this real estate experience, other sort of business experience and stuff. But, you know, do you come from an entrepreneurial family? Are there other folks in your family who you can 
get advice from or like how do how do you figure out what to do so i will say barry has been he has like held my hand through this whole process because he is a serial entrepreneur and so this isn't his first baby um and so his knowledge of what to do in what situations you know, <laughs> like I, I can't pay for that. I can't pay for that knowledge. And so usually I go to him for a pep talk. He's like, well, you got to figure this out. And I'm like, well, thanks. Thanks for the pep talk. <laughs> yeah. And so usually, you know, I end up figuring it out and this is just kind of worked that way for the past two years. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Well, now because I'm so deeply invested and I know that I have, you know, four other families that are depending on the success of this farm, I'm like, I can't let them down. I have to, you know, just keep chucking, chucking forward. So I allow myself to, you know, feel the gravity of what's happening because, you know, this is such a unique time they're in, you know, like it's, it's no way to just keep going and not allow yourself to feel. So I, I feel it, but then I'm like, okay, you know, what's next? What are we going to do? So I think um, being the ability to be nimble and try to figure out what to do next is kind of what has been sustaining us. Yeah. I have so many questions about how you deal with that because like, uh, you know, I think that um, certainly personally, I, I feel like, you know, I've been in some of the same situations where it's like, okay, I need to respect the gravity of the situation. You've got people's jobs, you've got other people's money, you've got, um, you know, also customers, all these people who are relying on you. And personally, sometimes I feel like that stress is really helpful, it's useful. And then other times I think it's just, it's too much, you know, like, and, and it, it can constrict you, like it can stop you from thinking, you know, long term, it can make you feel like people talk about this, like scarcity mentality versus like abundance mentality. I don't know if you've ever heard those phrases before, but like, you know, how do you, how do you handle that? Because if you just constantly worry, you can't get anything done, right? Yes, I think that's where I am now. So <laughs> with the expansion, it's like, um, I figure out one part of the farm, but then once another part gets done, then the goal line gets <laughs> gets moved. But then if you add the complexity of the pandemic, it's like, oh my God, like what is happening? And so, um, yeah, you're right. But I think <laughs> I've been taking a lot of vitamins. I say I've mentioned vitamin D earlier, but there is this vitamin that supports your adrenals because I feel What's like I it's called adrenal vibe adrena vibe oh. it's something like that vibe it's legal yeah it is it is and then <laughs> i take another um supplement for insomnia and that that's like insomnitol i believe that's oh, that one so those two together help to kind of restore my adrenals that i've been depleting all day <laughs> and help to kind of for me to get a good sleep. Cause I like, when you're so worked up like that, it's hard to get sleep, you know? So I found myself like not sleeping for days. I'm like, this is not right. Right. I gotta get some rest. So taking a lot of vitamins and just like really taking the time to 
uh, and a lot of routines have been helping Ooh. too. So like um, having routines in my day, Barry actually taught there? me that he's really good at it. Um, oh, yeah? So he's really good about, cause he is a, like I said, serial entrepreneur and he's always been on this wave of entrepreneurship. So I'm new to it. And so it's really nice to see someone who has already, you know, established certain boundaries and so it ends up working out. So yeah, I, I take a well, lot Well, tell of- me the routines then. What are these secret routines of the of the greats that we need to learn? <laughs> so the first one is um, cutting, out, cutting out TV consumption. Um, oh, entirely? Barry has gotten to none. I'm not there yet. So <laughs> I kind of restrict my... Um, my tv consumption with and replace it with things that i enjoy um to help me to come down so whether it's reading or playing a game but just something to just kind of help to you know change my day um having like hard not hard stop times because that's not true not right now but uh (laughs) just like having routines in the morning so coffee and then you know just like routines in the morning and then routines at night to help to promote sleep I think are really helping me everything in between is just unpredictable but those (laughs) the morning and the night routine have really been keeping me yeah, I know. I I love a routine as well. My my personal thing um, is in the morning. I have like a mushroom coffee thing. Do you know about these? Like the I have the four sigmatic ones, and I have like lion's mane, and I have uh, cordyceps, which is sort of like an athletic recovery thing. And I I'm convinced that the lion's mane makes my brain better and everything. And then I do, um, have you heard of morning pages? Do you know about that? Morning pages is like for 20 minutes, you just write down everything on your mind Mm -hmm. and it like just clears your head. And so you can go and do other stuff without worrying so much about that. I I do do that that at night to go to sleep. So I write everything. I do the brain dump at night. Okay. Night pages, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. I mean, I, I think it's a real... You know, it's been for me a real sort of process because when I was younger, I, you know, I had a different company and it was VC backed and we had a lot of pressure on us and everything. And I was, I was much more like I would work myself like crazy and then I would kind of crash, you know, and I think farm one sort of taught me that I can't really do that. It's not sustainable. It doesn't produce your best work and so you have to sort of figure out these strategies to survive which it sounds like what you're doing yeah I mean because if you think about it Rob the industry that we're in we have to be healthy because it's kind of incongruent to run a farm and promote fresh healthy food and you're not doing that self-work yourself so that's what I that's what I've been telling myself like it's off-brand for me to be unhealthy (laughs) yeah no i think it's true i think it's true and and so i'm really i'm curious i mean of course you don't have to tell us you know everything but how did you how did you get to this like part owner relationship with herban and because that's a pretty prized position i would say and you know as you mentioned like a lot of people in urban ag don't look like you don't come from your background and you know i think that it, it would be amazing if more and more places had ownership that was representative of communities that they're in and 
So how do how do you do it? Like, what's the what's the tip for people yeah, who want to so, end up? Yeah, so um, like I said, I started off um, as a greenhouse manager. That's what that's the position I was being hired. But I sat at the table and I looked very square in his eye, and I was like, "You mean to tell me?" I'm going to be running this whole thing by myself and I'm going to help to build it. I was like, I want equity, but it was a nonprofit at the time. And so there was no way for me to get equity of the company that, you know, you can't distribute equity to. So um, when we decided that the nonprofit model wasn't working anymore um, and we wanted to switch to a for-profit model, that was the first thing on the on the on the uh, conversation. He said, "You know what? You mentioned equity when we first started. You know, let's let's you just become a majority owner, and that's just that. And so that's how that conversation. So one, he's a good person <laughs> because I know a lot of people wouldn't have um, took that kind of risk, but um, it's just. But he understands that." Um, because he, you know, he does something on the side and I was the one that was the four, I was the one like, you know, soldiering up and running the business that I worked hard for it. Um, and that's what I did. So even before I became co-owner, when it was a nonprofit, I was working hard at trying to figure out how to make the company more money, um, how to change the operations so that it would become sustainable. I saw it as my own. And um, what I see in a lot of young people today is that they think that just because they come on site that they deserve, you know, a higher salary and they haven't really put in the work. And so I'm so glad I listened to this podcast like my entire 20s. It's this um, this lady named Miley Teal and she is the owner of Curlbox. Have you ever heard of the subscription service? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 So um, she has this podcast where she just kind of gives out all of her tips of the trade. And so she would talk about millennials all the time and how, <laughs> <laughs> how entitled we are. And so I did a lot of that work before getting on um, the urban team of, you know, ways in which you have to prove yourself. And you just have to do the work and be the best at what you do in order to, you know, reap the benefits. And so that's kind of what I did. Um, I worked, I worked my ass off, right, <laughs> to for him to um, give that offer to me. So yeah. And and did you come up with this idea of asking for equity from that podcast, or you had it was in the back of your mind, or like how do how do you start thinking about that? Okay, so I've always been around um, very, I don't want to say wealthy, but powerful people. Um, So the nonprofit work that I talked about previously was in an organization um, that was deeply rooted in Chicago. And um, so I've always been around high-powered individuals, whether it's in government, um, the entertainment industry, you know, that type of thing. So I really paid attention to the way in which these people move and navigate throughout the world. And so I know that equity is one of the biggest parts of that. Having some kind of ownership is um, a contributor to wealth. And so I know that that's something that I wanted for myself. I mean, no, let's say urban is, has a long way to go, but that's just something that I wanted for myself. And so yeah. um, just having that education before to just know what to 
um, what to expect and what to ask for, especially when the company is a startup was, I guess, previous knowledge. And how did it feel asking? Because, you know, personally, I have trouble asking for stuff sometimes, right? And then, you know, and I, and I think some, I, you know, I feel like in the world, there's like two kinds of people. Some people, it's just so easy. They just ask. And then they, if they don't get it, they don't get it. But like, it's hard for a lot of people to just ask. Yeah. I think I had an outer body experience because usually I am, um, <laughs> I am slow to ask for things that I want, but um, I was looking at what the, the offer was at the time. And I was just like, wow, um, I could go to a lab and make, you know, more money, or I can take this opportunity to build something meaningful. And so I, I wanted to do that. And I was really passionate about the work. And so I guess that's what gave me the courage to ask for it because I really did. I was really deeply connected to the work that I was about to do. And when you're in that kind of situation, do you ask for um, advice from folks in your family or anything like that? Like, yeah, you do. Yeah. So I, I always say that my dad is my financial guru. So he was the one that kind of coached me through, um, he coaches me through all of my financial, uh, <laughs> my financial moves, but he was the one that was like, okay, um, yeah, I agree with you. You should ask for it. It's, it's a fair question. Just see what happens. And my husband is also a big encourager of just ask it, just ask. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? They could say no. Right. So um, just the encouragement of them to, would just really help to me to like, just ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know it's something typically that women don't, women historically don't ask for what they want because they feel like they're not going to get it or they're going to be challenged. And the thing about it, he didn't challenge me, you know, which was encouraging because I think had he challenged me on it, I probably would have been, you know, more prone to retreat, but he didn't. Yeah. Like he didn't challenge me. He was just like, well, let's, let's, let's table it and let's talk about it later. And he, he, um, he really, um, you know, came through on his work. Do you ever see like a similar dynamic with people working for you? Because now you're sort of a little bit on the other side of the table sometimes, right? And do you like, cause, cause I know personally, sometimes I spot it where you've got someone great who I, I'm, sometimes I tell them like, oh, you know what? Like if you just give me a proposal of what you want, I, you're going to get it. <laughs> you know, do you ever see stuff like that? from your side of the table? So our recent hire, um, the farm manager that we just hired, she's such a go-getter. And so um, it's really important to me now to hire based off of personality. Um, somewhat skill set. I don't know if you've like seen the same thing, but personality, I think, is a big driver. And when you're running a startup like as small as ours, um, personality is like going to go way longer. And so her having that same like entrepreneurial spirit is is great so i'm like that's key everyone we hire just has to have that ownership over the farm um because that's the only way it's going to continue to grow yeah yeah 100 percent. how do you how do you interview people then what are your what are your tips <laughs> i don't know i feel like i'm still not good at it <laughs> but well, that I probably means you're pretty good because like people who think they're really good at it are not good at it i would say <laughs> I try to 
So it starts off, I try to make it very, you know, conversational, you know, um, more of a conversation of, okay, do I even connect with this person? Um, because we all know that people beef up their resumes and <laughs> they say they know how to do one thing, but they really don't. Um, so just to have a conversation and then, you know, kind of get a deeper connection and then, you know, just start. And I think asking a lot of um, troubleshooting questions, like how would you troubleshoot this, this um, scenario has really helped me. <laughs> so just like mm-hmm. seeing how they respond to pressure, because we all know like working in a farming environment is a lot of pressure. Things could go wrong at the blink of an eye. If, you know, a reservoir runs dry, all the plants are dead. And okay, we have all these orders to fulfill. What do you do? You know, (laughs) so (laughs) just waiting and hearing those answers of how people troubleshoot um, has been a a big uh, plus. And for the lower tier jobs, so like farmhands, we do work days. So we actually get to see them in in action so that's really helped a lot too so doing a little short interview but really having it be okay I'm working alongside you so I really get to see who you are and how you work how fast you work and what your experience is if you actually know how to harvest it because you said you did you know so yeah I think that's that's like you can't you can't hire anyone on the farm without doing that because the person who looks amazing on paper like even people who've had experience in other farms who like and then you bring them on the farm and then it's like oh okay i mean we had i remember we had one guy and it was the it was this perfect scenario because we had all these trays that were being moved around and he didn't really i wasn't like spying on him like definitely not but i was just walking past and i just saw him he dropped one of the trays on the floor so all the produce got dirty and he just sort of and then he put it back on the shelf. And I was like, all right, well, that's the end of that then, you know? Uh, but it's the kind of thing where in an interview, you'd never you'd never even get to the bottom of that, you know? And that was, anyway. But yeah, so so you have to do something like that. I, I totally agree. And and so and what do you what do you think that your mistakes have been? I'm definitely someone who's made mistakes in terms of, you know, all kinds of things, but like you know, after having done this for a couple of years, like what, you know, if you could look back and warn your younger self, like not to do this or that, what do you think it would be? So when I first started, uh, I didn't realize how important models were. Um, What do you mean by that? Like financial models Um, and just like diving into the data and the numbers. Um, And so at first we were just doing without um, like really measuring all that was done to figure out what made sense. And so um, it, at first I wish I would have taken the time to really record more data oh. so that I would be able to project better because um, as you know, like you have to figure out what makes sense in order to make a farming business sustainable. So yeah. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Because the margins are so tight often and 
The other thing we found with collecting data is like it can be a really laborious process to collect the data, right? And then people get really frustrated and they're like, wait, I'm I don't have time to do this. And then you're like, oh yeah, I guess so. And so we've I mean we we've gone back and forwards on it. And we're sort of in the middle of collecting new data now because we've completely changed the model. And we were sort of literally today we were talking about um how much labor it would take to do a bigger area and then we realized that a lot of the time we're taking right now is just weighing stuff and then if we were growing three times as much stuff we wouldn't need to weigh three times you know anyway yeah the data collect it gets so tough and i was by myself at the time so it was really hard for me to to sell and um you know, meet the demand of production and also take the time to, you know, collect data and project. So, yeah. So I want to, I want to talk about maybe two more things. And one of them is um, molecular biology to farming. And like, (laughs) do you, I, I guess part of me doesn't even sort of, um, I, I didn't do very well at biology in school. And so how did you decide to go into molecular biology? How did you then go like, okay, I'm going to abandon all of that. Do you think you're ever going to sort of go back that way or like introduce some of that kind of science aspect into what you guys are doing? Like, how does it fit into your worldview now? Yeah. So it's very intertwined. Um, I have applied a lot of my scientific um, training to farming um, because it's all interconnected. Um, An example of that was figuring out the nutrient content of our water in our hydroponic greenhouse. So a lot of, I told you before, there was a stigma of hydroponic lettuce in the chef world, especially top tier chefs. They didn't want anything to do with it. They're like, oh, that lettuce is sad. It tastes like water. It wilts after uh, three minutes. I don't want any part of it. I'm like, no, I've worked really hard at, you know, changing the nutrient content of my water. So it's more soil-like, you know, I, so yeah, just that part has been really fun. And trying to figure out the perfect uh, nutrient mix of our water and how that provides a, a soil-like uh, environment for the, the crops. So that's that's fun. And so I got into the science world uh, because I originally wanted to be a medical doctor. Mm, okay. <laughs> like okay. every other person that chooses a science major and on, on their freshman year, they want to go to med school. Uh, so that was my original dream. Um, and it didn't work out the first time for me. <laughs> so I actually graduated with a degree in anthropology. Oh, okay. That was my bachelor's degree. And so after I graduated, um, at the time I was doing field research. And so um, I did field research um, in, in Costa Rica. And I wanted to do field research in, in the Himalayas, but my parents wouldn't Whoa. let me go. <laughs> Why not? So the nature of the work, <laughs> they were like, no, we wouldn't be able to have contact with you. I'm like, no, I'll just be, I'll just be, you know, going from village to village and uh, providing, oh. it was like something, I, it was something crazy. And then I was like, well, okay, can I do research in Japan? And they were like, you know what, Alicia, no. 
So that just kind of killed my whole, you know, field research career. And I was like, well, I still want to do some aspect of research. Um, Let me go back to school. They were like, fine, but you have to pay for it. (laughs) And so uh, I ended up, you know, going back and re-registering and starting a, um, a biology program. And that I was like, I just kept going. And so the, the goal was to either um, to get a PhD. And so by the end of my master's thesis, I was so done with school. I was like, no, I have to stop now and either get a job. I, don't I can't, yeah. I can't go through a, another dissertation or another de- thesis defense. It was so stressful. <laughs> and so I decided to um, uh, try to find like, you know, untraditional jobs or jobs with startups. And so I think at the time, I was looking at cool companies like Impossible Meats. Uh, it oh, was okay. another like startup that was happening when they were looking for scientists. And so yeah. I started looking at like cool jobs like that, but there was a startup right around the corner. And so cool. once I got in the work, I realized how um, interconnected science is with farming. So it's been kind of fun to let the science lead what we do. Yeah. No, that's cool. I didn't realize that whole history. Anthropology. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's so funny how it's like full circle because what we do, um, like my my um anthropological background allows me to kind of dissect cultural nuances that I don't think I would have been aware of had I not had that um that training or that background. Give me an example. So, you know, just the way in which, um, you know, certain people, why they behave the way that they do and um, why they make the decisions that they make and not necessarily being judgmental about it, but really dissecting it and trying to implement programming that makes where you meet people where they are, not necessarily trying to change them. So that has been, so it's kind of like emerging myself in the culture because you know just because you know and then realizing my differences because you know everyone that lives in East Garfield Park we aren't a monolith right we're all different we all have different cultural experiences even me as a a black woman who moved back here as an adult versus someone who was raised here we have two totally life um life experiences so just being aware of that and um, how to create programming and communicate, all that plays a big role into what I do. Yeah, and I'm sure as a manager as well and as a leader in the company, right? You know, I think that, um, you know, you can create companies that are just echoes of yourself and you can also create companies that have a diverse selection of views and people. and, And I think those companies tend to be healthier, you know, and. And so having that anthropological understanding, um, it can only help, right, I think. So I guess we're we're not quite out of time, but I want to ask you one more thing, which is sort of um, what what do you think the future holds? And like there's a journey for herb and produce or urban produce. I I pronounce herb with... Yeah, it's fine. I like the way you pronounce it. (laughs) So... um, 
but yeah, what what's your aspiration there? Because I think that you've got something really, really interesting in that you have a, a, an urban farm that has many, many facets to it. As you said, partly just to stay sustainable, as in, you know, you need different revenue streams, you need different things going on. Um, but you sort of seem to be acquiring more and more land as well. So it looks like, you know, <laughs> you're just going to take over the whole west side of Chicago at some point, which would be amazing. Like, where do you think you can take it? And, and and where also do you think urban agriculture can get to in the next 10, 20 years? Like, what's your aspiration there? Yeah, so I hope that urban produce can really um, become a model for urban agriculture. Because um, one thing I really haven't seen in this industry is collaboration, right? Everyone figures out how to make their operation works. They kind of operate in a silo and they don't share anything with anyone else outside of those parameters. And so I'm like, it's okay to share. Like it's no way that we can all provide um, enough produce to sustain the population. So that idea of collaboration and sharing with other um, producers I think it's really, really important. So I hope that um, urban produce can really grow in that whole educational um, realm. And um, that's not just through us just, you know, trying to find a means of income, but based off of the successes that we've experienced at the farm. So hopefully all this, you know, <laughs> R&D and blood, sweat and tears will, will pay off so that we will be able to help someone to kind of establish a seamless operation um, and be able to do it and for anyone to be able to do it, you know, like from how to raise money for it, you know, like all of this stuff. So I think that's really where I kind of see us. Like, so we're creating this model and then hopefully we're able to, you know, help future farmers. Yeah. So if you could kind of send a message that was like Alicia's vision 2030 urban agriculture what would that be oh my gosh i wish barry was on this call <laughs> barry would say alicia you should answer this no right no 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 so we both are nerds right and so we have this idea of the oxygen positive uh oh. model right so now okay. everyone's talking about carbon neutral everyone's yeah. talking about carbon neutral but we have this idea of really intertwining technology and um, in farming so that we become this oxygen positive business. So of course we, we figure out how to do, um, um, what do you call the heating method? Oh gosh. Geothermal or no, what do you, no, sorry, go on. No, what is it called? Where you get um, what is it? A byproduct of what is it? Oh my! Oh, like like compost giving off heat? Is it? Is yeah, it... like something that gives off heat, right? So you get that mm. natural kind of heating method. Um, yeah. <laughs> we cut off. So this is so using like you know um, energy powered vehicles. Um, of course, we use less water in our. Um, in our farming methods, but we have to figure it out for the traditional um, mm -hmm. ag side. And so like just, you know, being good stewards of the environment um, so that 
we're able, we're carbon neutral, but you know, we're amongst all this green life, right? So our plants give off oxygen. So we're oxygen positive. So it's kind of like this lofty idea that Barry and I have been kicking around for the past few years, but yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. No, I think it's a nice like, oxygen positive should be the next carbon neutral, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm into it. Yeah, I think we could, I think we could play a part in that. That'd be super cool. Very cool. All right. Well, it's been amazing talking to you, Alicia. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your routines and your vitamins and like everything. It's so good. Um, where can people catch you guys online and social, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so you can catch us at urbanproduce.com. That's H-E-R-B-A-N. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's all of our tags on social media, IG and Facebook. Um, I'm personally BB underscore bluff on Instagram. So you can uh, <laughs> talk to me. I know that's a that's a long story why how I ended up as BB bluff, but yeah <laughs> i may change it to my name eventually but i just can't part with that handle but yeah that's how you can find us <laughs> amazing and then and then hopefully in the spring or in the summer next year people will be able to go and visit uh maybe stay on the farm as well right yeah yeah very cool okay well thank you very much all right it's a wrap. <laughs> okay, okay.